great poems were great poems because what made them great is universal and it stays and it sticks around. If you find no value or worth in ancient great poems, you're probably going to miss something that could make your poetry great. Because this, is, I think, is the one with the shortest lines, but it literally is gravity. All of the words are falling. To me, it made sense that they're all, it's all one to three words per line, and you're just being pulled down the poem. It just attests to the to the overall feeling of of grief and just melancholy throughout the entire book. I feel like it adds to that to the differentiation in poems. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Sarah and Jenea about Claire Walmanholm's book of poems entitled Red Mouth. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll steal a page out of Claire's book and give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that will help you revivify a text from the past. To begin with a quote of the day, or rather a couple quotes of the day, I wanted to read a sentence from this wonderful book called The Song of the Earth by Jonathan Bate. It's a book about poetry and its relationship to the environment. This sentence comes in the context of a discussion of, I think, some rather abstruse philosophy by Heidegger and others. So that might explain the rather cryptic nature of this sentence, but I think it does a great job explaining what poetry might be capable of and reminding those of us who read and write poetry the responsibility we have to be ambitious. Jonathan Bate writes this, If mortals dwell in that they save the earth... And if poetry is the original admission of dwelling, then poetry is the place where we save the earth. That might seem rather quixotic, not to say delusional, in its ambition. Nine days out of ten, I'm the first to admit that poetry might not be capable of saving the earth. But I think to work under that assumption that it can't save the earth is to do both a disservice to poetry and to those of us who read and write it. I think we have to expect a lot out of this genre that we love, or else it won't give us a lot in return. I'd like to follow that up with this quote by W.H. Auden, because I think it helps illuminate one of the most important ways that poetry can save the earth. Auden wrote this, Poetry can do a hundred and one things, delight, sadden, disturb, amuse, instruct. It may express every possible shade of emotion and describe every conceivable event, But there is only one thing that all poetry must do. It must praise all it can for being and for happening. I think Walman Holmes' book lives up to this description of the myriad things that poetry can offer us. It's a book that delights, saddens, disturbs, amuses, and instructs. But I think above all, it's a book that praises, simply notices and rejoices that things are and that things happen. And for more about this and many other things, let's go into that chat with me and Sarah and Jenea. Hi, Jenea. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you guys? I'm doing good. I really love this book. It is quite drastically different in style, I would say, in many ways from Zimborska. Yeah. I wanted to intentionally teach these both kind of back-to-back to to write at the start of the semester, highlight exactly how many different ways there are to write poetry. I mean, not to say that these are totally opposite in every way. I don't want to give that impression, but they do a lot of different kinds of things from each other. Yeah, so I wanted to highlight some end of the spectrum and to display other things that poetry can do that Zimborska doesn't really do. Um, I wanted to talk about this poem, Breach. It's on page 31. So I'll read this poem and then I'll just praise it and I'll just, yeah, for 60 seconds talk about why I find it so beautiful and appealing. So this is Breach. And it has this epigraph from Ovid who wrote, Sometimes an anchor snags in a green meadow. Sometimes a curving keel may graze the vines. Sometimes you wake to find your pasture changed. Sometimes you wake a free creature and shake your horse limbs. Sometimes your future seems a heavy thing to float in. You are a flight animal, but some mornings you limp. Some mornings teem with fish you cannot digest with your horse belly. You have keen horse eyes, but underwater the colors are dim, and the depths are full of teeth you cannot outswim. 
One morning you wake to a punctured lung and several broken ribs. This is no longer your orchard, sigh your lungs. This is no longer your nest of grass. An anchor snags on your broken chest. A keel carves your back. You wish you were made for this, that you could wake to find your posture changed, that your body could thin and blend with the waterline. You dream until the pounding of your hooves breaks the night's ground into another morning where you have not yet drowned. You know these mornings are running out. Each sun rises more dimly, sprouts less freely from the water, wavers for just an hour over the waves before surrendering. You are soon to be uncreatured, unsutured from your pasture blade by blade. Why aren't you running? Why aren't you afraid? I hardly know where to begin. Some of the best advice I got as a, I still consider myself a beginning poet, someone who is still in his apprenticeship. Some of the best advice I got early on was that great poems contain something like two surprises per line. And there are many ways that a poem can surprise, many, many ways. Many of those ways, maybe most of those ways have to do with word choice or diction, but they can surprise in terms of form or punctuation or white space or sound patterns, sonic patterns. They can surprise by allusion or reference to other poems. You know, there are many ways that a poem can surprise. I just want to highlight how good Claire Womanholm is at making the words, the few words that are coming next, totally unpredictable. And yet somehow feel, once you have read them, totally inevitable, you know? Sometimes you wake to find your pasture changed. Sometimes you wake a free creature and shake, line break, your horse limbs. I mean, there's no way we could have predicted that horse limbs is coming. It just comes out of nowhere, totally out of nowhere. And yet when it does, we think, oh yeah, I, I can see in some of the ways that I'm like this other beast, this other creature, you know? So it feels both surprising and inevitable. And I haven't gone down and counted what I, what I think are surprises in each of these lines, but the poem is full of surprises, right? You are a flight animal. That's a surprise. But some mornings you limp. That's another surprise. Some mornings team, line break, with fish, surprise, you cannot digest with your horse belly. I don't know how many surprises that is, but it seems like if you were to cover the lines up with your hand and kind of read one word at a time, almost every word would be surprising and unpredictable. This is not to say that they're just chaos. They're not at all chaos. A after you read them, I think you get the impression that you're being told something that makes absolute sense. So that's one thing that I think Claire Womanholm is exceptionally good at. Cram this is what Keats says, you know, that a poem should, he very brazenly writes to his slightly elder um, contemporary poet, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and says, you know, your poems are good, but what you should do is load every rift with ore. Cram every crack in your poem with gold. Make sure you cram as much gold in your poem as possible. I think she's really good at that. Another thing is, we've talked about this in class before, the importance of concrete sensory imagery and the way in which that sensory detail is maybe the best method of evoking emotion and evoking ideas. If I was to ask you, which I won't, because it would be kind of an annoying question. If I was to ask you, what is this poem about? You would be rightly annoyed at this question, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it doesn't, that's, this is not the right question to ask. The poem isn't about anything so much as it evokes a state of being. What is the state of being that this poem evokes? The state of being, I mean, I, I hate paraphrasing poetry, but sometimes it's unavoidable. The state of being that this poem evokes for me is the feeling we have, that we sometimes have of not belonging in our bodies, or we look at our bodies and they change and we are not prepared for these changes. We think we were meant to be something else. And yet here we are stuck in this corporeal thing. You know, you are a flight animal, but some mornings you limp. It's like we, we have this higher potential or energy or vitality, or we feel some kind of divine breath has been breathed into us. And yet we are slow and decrepit and frail. That's, that's, that's one state of being that this poem evokes for me. But it doesn't say that in abstractions. It depicts this in concrete imagery of this horse limping, not being able to digest, horse limbs, punctured lungs, broken ribs. You know, there is no longer your nest of grass. We came from a better place and we're now in a place where we don't really belong. She's so good at evoking states of being in images. That's another thing I wanted to highlight. 
We talked about how Zimborska often keeps surprising us right up to and including the very last line. There's kind of no wasted space. It's like surprise, 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 surprise. I think Claire Walmanholm is also very, very good at this. You know, I she builds this extremely solid, concrete foundation of sensory lushness and detail. I mean, there might be an abstraction or two along the way, but the real most powerful abstractions, the, the, the greatest moment of rhetoric in the poem is the very end. Why aren't you running? Why aren't you afraid? You know, we get to the end, not anticipating this. It's a question. We talked about this in Zimborska too. The poem isn't asserting any kind of knowledge. It's asking questions it doesn't really know the answer to. I think it's just so exceptionally great. What, what would you add or what else would you say about the successes and beauties and lushness of this poem in particular before we move on? I think this was one of the poems that I related to the most on a very personal level, um, not only because of its vivid nature. And I feel like, to be honest, most of them are pretty hard to understand. And having the thought that I shouldn't be focusing on what this poem means and instead what I feel, or I think that I felt the most emotion when reading this poem. My connection to, to it is basically like a during COVID, everyone has been a lot more aware of mental health. And mm. I feel like that this poem really does a great job of almost describing and putting into images the search and discovery and pitfalls and um, successes of just exploring mental health and figuring out, uh, figuring it out, especially at like the very first couple of lines that you've read with sometimes you wake to find your pastor change sometimes you wake a free creature and shake your horse limbs sometimes I wake up and I'm like ready to take on the day and other days I'm like I feel yeah. like sitting in bed all day long yeah for sure. <laughs> especially during COVID that's been such a huge thing to figure out and learn to to deal with and to overcome and to you know figure out healthy ways to to deal with mental health yeah, sometime, or sometimes your future seems a heavy thing to float in. Those are those mornings, yeah. But she doesn't say, oh, sometimes you, sometimes you feel unmotivated. You know, that would be a kind of abstraction. She wants to make the future seem tactile, touchable, this kind of liquid thing that you don't, that you feel trapped by or smothered by, you know. She, she wants to make these emotions be connected. I mean, we are bodies, you know, for better or worse, we are bodies. There's no reason to separate emotions or ideas from bodily sensations. I think poetry often, again and again teaches us that the best way to evoke emotions is to appeal to the body. So if you want to evoke this, moment, this, this, this emotion of, I guess you could say depression, but it doesn't really cover it. You know, that might be only one version of this. That's why I think tactile imagery is better because tactile imagery could evoke all of it at the same time. Sometimes your future seems a heavy thing to float in. That could evoke 12 different versions of mornings like that, 12 different causes for feeling that way, you know? And it does it in a way where you feel smothered by this heaviness. Yeah, so actually that that was one of my favorite lines from it, um, just because I feel like when I first started reading this, and I was listening to the podcast about Zimborska, and it was talking about how like we should be like super specific, and like Zimborska is really good at being clear about who her audience is and what she's talking about. Yeah. Um, but then I realized that like, because I still really liked these poems and I was trying to figure out what it was about them. And I think that it's because she's so clear in her sensory image, in her sensory detail. As we're reading through this one, maybe we don't know like why she decided to pick a horse or any of these things, but that's right. not really what matters. As we read through it, like we can clearly picture these things that she's describing and that clear imagery evokes clear emotion. Is how I, thought. I mean, I thought all of her poems were that way throughout this whole book. Excellent. I want to turn to one of your poems now, but we shouldn't let go of this um, question about the poem's mysteriousness. Is that a good way of describing it? These poems are mysterious to a certain degree. So I don't want to let go of that idea. But let, should we turn to a poem that one of you particularly loved? Okay. Yeah, I can. So the poem that I picked was Elegy Where My Sorrow Appears is an Undiscovered Land, which is on page seven. Um, so it also starts with a little epigraph. And it says, bear violets now, you bramble bushes and thorn trees. Let the world turn cross-natured since Daphnis dies. Let the prickly juniper bloom with soft narcissus. Let pine be weighed with pears. Let the stag hunt the hounds. Let the nightingale attend to the screech owl's cries. I, Theocritus. 
I row across five oceans to reach its bay, or I wake up one morning to find myself embalmed in its bees and flowers, or I drag myself through its gorse hedge mazes. The garden grass is tender and wet. The gorse does not hurt. The dragging feels like falling asleep. Each thorn draws a drop of ether through my, the surface of my skin until I am a lake. I float on myself for a long time, expecting to drown, but not drowning, expecting someone else to arrive. This land goes on and on in every direction. There is no center, only violet clouds or clouds in the shape of beasts I have never seen or beasts whose teeth are nightingale feathers. When I say this land needs a queen, I mean I could stay here forever. If this dream will one day strangle me sleeping in its vines, I will not struggle. Within its evergreen map, I will sleep, a dull and sapless leaf. I mean, this is kind of similar to what I was saying about the last poem, but when I was reading it, it's like, each thorn draws an effort through the surface of my skin until I am awake. I float on myself for a long time. And I don't know that I ever would have described anything that way, but I know exactly what that feels like. Mm -hmm. As I read this poem, it just felt like, first of all, I could see it so clearly, this... Um, world that she's created with violet clouds and this intense connection with nature and kind of like this um I, I don't know how to describe it like an uncreating of herself like yeah. um like she falls apart in so many of these poems but in, like so in this one like she kind of just drips apart and becomes a lake yeah. and her consciousness is still there but it's just kind of like this floating and I just I thought that that was really really beautiful and then I love how she she shifts topics, but it just seems kind of like you're saying it's a surprise, but it seems so uh, connected once you get there. Like she's describing all these things. And then she goes, when I say this land needs a queen, I mean, I could stay here forever. Mm. And it's just kind of like this, this thought, like she's been thinking it and then it just, it comes out in the poem, like mm -hmm. this land needs a queen. And she just, she just tells us as though she's already said it before, even though she didn't, but yet she did. When I say this land needs a queen, okay, so um, Robert Frost has this wonderful, I'm sure I've alluded to it in several other podcasts, this wonderful description of the way that a poem should should surprise us in its composition. Uh, Frost says that like a piece of ice on a hot stove, a poem should ride on its own melting. So you can imagine it taking a whole, this piece of ice taking a whole bunch of unpredictable twists and turns on its journey on this hot stove. I think great poems all do this to some degree. Maybe it's only one turn that they have, or maybe it's turn upon turn upon turn. But great poems always surprise us in their permutations of thought, their turns of thought, their evolution of thought. The title of the poem, Elegy Where My Sorrow Appears as an Undiscovered Land. Okay, that's quite clear. I'm going to depict a, a kind of imagined landscape that will be a metaphor for my sorrow. I row across five oceans to reach its base. So it's, it's kind of far away. It takes a long time to get there, et cetera, et cetera. And she wants to, she, the author, wants to give the poem some kind of conceptual turn. She wants to see, how can I make this piece of ice shift? How can I say something new? And how can I say that thing in a surprising way? I could say, I want to stay here forever, or I feel like the ruler of this place. I think this queen business is so great. When I say this land needs a queen, you know, it's like, it's almost so surprisingly triumphant, you know, or celebratory in a surprising way. It's concrete, you know, we see a queen, it's easy to picture. I think that's really great. I love what you say, Jenea, about the way that in so many of these poems, she's kind of dissolving, corporeally dissolving into the environment. This is kind of a comment about her poems generally, about the the grief and kind of the, the heaviness and depths within her poetry. That being said, there's many different ways to grieve. And there's no correct way to grieve, but there are many different ways. And if you were to ask someone, what is it? What does your grief feel like? It's really hard to pinpoint because it feels like a million different things and mm. nothing at the same time. And I feel like at the very beginning of this poem, I feel like this poem generally gives a great a depiction of what grief feels like along with all of her poems. But this one specifically right at the beginning where it's, I row across five oceans to reach its bay or I wake up and that part, or I drag myself through and it's these different, like it's this or it's this. And it's very much those trying to grasp what grief is really feeling like. And then at the very end, why, when I say this land needs a queen, I mean, I could stay here forever. And in yeah. grief, you really could stay in grief forever. 
And I, I just felt like this poem was so, so good <laughs> and so deep. It's, it, it's a, that's a great example of a surprising but believable statement. We're slightly surprised. You could stay here forever, but grief is bad. But then the immediately next thought is, oh, no, I know what that feels like, that you want to hold on to it and you want to kind of nurse the grief and you don't want to leave it. It becomes kind of weirdly precious to you. Like, I think it's so fascinating that in this poem she's created, it's like so unexpected because it's it's like a personal Narnia that like she travels to, but yet it's a, it's a place of sorrow, right? Like her sorrow appears, but yet it's like you get here this way or this way or this way. And maybe yeah. she's gotten there different days, all these different ways. And she keeps appearing back in this undiscovered land. And so it's this fascinating, like personal internal world of wonder, but like mm-hmm. that wonder is very... It is just like very heavy and and couched in grief and sorrow, so which is just such a fascinating combination. I never would have thought to create an like an imaginary world or an undiscovered land that is usually such a magical and fantastical thing and connect that with grief, but yet it makes so much sense. Yeah, it does because we go to strange places when we grieve, and we do feel totally like we're in a different land. We're disconnected from the world. Narnia is a good comment, like. And this relates to what I, where I wanted to go next, about this mysterious, the mysteriousness of her poems. Since they're, maybe this goes without saying, since they're an art form, poems are inherently mysterious. They cannot be reduced to a recipe. There is always going, even the best poems, even the clearest poems, you know, Zimborska's poems, there's always going to be something about them that we think, wow, how did you do that? Or where did this come from? Always going to be a few steps ahead of us, right? So these poems are a few steps ahead of us, maybe in some different ways than Zimborska's poems are. And I just want to talk for maybe, you know, 90 seconds about what's the best way to deal with the fact that the poem, some of these poems feel to kind of inhabit, you know, the mode of this book, maybe like we're kind of wading through the fog slightly, like we don't quite know where we are slightly. Yeah. Talk about why you would write this way. What are the risks involved in writing this way? How as an author, you might navigate these risks and how as a reader, you might learn to be comfortable inside all of this un- uncertainty. Um, I th- actually think this poem is quite clear, right? The title announces the metaphor, and then it's like the sentences couldn't be clearer. The grass is tender and wet. The gorse does not hurt. The dragging feels like falling asleep. Some surreal things start to happen. Beasts I have never seen. Beasts whose teeth are nightingale feathers. So we think, oh, this is slightly surreal or dreamlike. I still think this poem is more or less accessible. I'll stop talking. Do either of you have anything to say about this mysteriousness, either from the viewpoint of a reader of this book or a writer of poems? How do you write poems that are mysterious in this way, maybe slightly surreal, and yet are clear in all of the important ways? Some of the things that we've talked about has sparked the idea, um, especially Jenea talking about Narnia. Narnia is such like a happy, I mean, there's, there is sorrow, there are trials there, but she creates this world of grief and where there is also a feeling of almost like comfort. And um, I don't know if serenity is the right right word, but she creates certainly beauty. Yeah, for for sure. But it's like a, a twist on that. And so I feel like with some of this like mystery, one of the ways that she makes it really successful. One of the things we talked about earlier is the unexpected and just creating this unexpected world, but one that we can still relate to, I feel like helps with that mysterious setting, I guess. Excellent. The landscape that she that she creates might be slightly otherworldly and interior and personalized, but there's two things that make it universal. The emotional landscape is universal. We all know what grief is. We all know what sorrow is. So these poems are about all of us. And also the kind of archetypal elemental imagery that she uses. Wolves, sheep, grass, trees, flowers, oceans, rivers, snow. Landscapes that, like I say, are archetypal and universal and that we all have access to, we've all interacted with. So we can feel like the speaker of these poems becomes a kind of every person. Like my thought is, um, you were talking, as you have both been sharing, is that there's a balance of mystery. The poem maintains its mysteriousness and but yeah, so like, for example, for this poem specifically, the title is exceptionally clear. Yeah. Like the title gives the metaphor. And so then it just gives like enough of a, of, a, of a compass so that you can really enjoy 
the fog that is the poem itself. Very good. Yeah. So maybe just not letting everything be entirely mysterious, understanding where to give more specifics and where to be mysterious. Another example of that, what you just said is that because she knows that her, because she knows that the journey she's about to take us on is, isn't going to always be clear to us. I think she goes out of her way to make sure that her language compensates. Her language is by no means plain, but this poem is a good example of her saying, okay, like we're entering a surreal world and to make sure that you follow me, my sentences will get short and ultra clear. The garden grass is tender and wet. No one can be lost. You know, I'm with you. Um, in other poems, the language gets wonderfully more ornate. I mean, I'm thinking of a poem called Fallow. I'll just read the first couple of lines. Like this is on page 29. She's also very good at layering the paint. So, you know, you can think of Van Gogh as a painter. The paint on his canvases is sometimes like half an inch thick. He wants to call attention to the language, to the nature of the medium. I think Walmanholm is doing something similar here. So follow the field into its summer, into its fawn-colored heat, its tall feathery yarrow. Look down at the untilled clouds breathing in the pond, whose water is so shallow and shadowless it's hot. Harrows withdraw to the horizon, dragging wide weeded furrows for you to lay your body in. So much compacted alliteration and assonance help the poem call attention to itself as constructed by language. And so the, the book gives us a mix of plain speech and more elaborate speech, but it might know when to give us this kind of railing to hold on to and that mystery and then trade. It might give us that mystery and this other railing to hold on to. You know what I mean? Okay, Sarah, should we do a third poem? Where would you like to take us? Um, well, we haven't gone over any of her, what are they called? The blackout poetry. I don't yeah, know. The erasure, erasure poems. poems. Yeah. Um, the one on 74, when I read through it, was one of my favorites. I think yeah. we, we don't have to read the source text. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I'll ask you. How do you think this poem should be read? When I came up to the first one of these, I started reading the source text, and then I really just wanted to get to what she sees in this. And so I just read um, the parts that weren't faded out. Maybe then what I'll ask you to do is read like maybe the first four or five lines of all of it, the source text, to emphasize, yeah, exactly what source she is creating her own poem off of. And then after four or five lines, you can just go and then read her version. Yeah, that sounds good. Virgil, the muse of the shepherd, Alpha Sebus and Damon, at whose contending songs the very cattle were spellbound in the field, forgetting to graze, the lynx was spellbound too, hearing the music, and the rivers spellbound stood still listening. Excellent. Yeah. So this is an old poem by Virgil, obviously an English translation, but it's one of his uh, eclogues uh, talking about these two shepherds. Okay. So she takes this original source text and plucks from it the following poem. Take it away. I am spellbound in the field, spellbound at the mouth of the river. I long for the world. When I come to the end, may I be among you. I think that this form is really interesting and just as impressive as, I guess, normal poetry, typical poetry, because it takes just as much effort and thought and just work generally to be able to pull out these kinds of things. I really like what she does that I haven't seen done before with this kind of poetry. She'll take words out of words. So like with Damon, she takes out am. Out of Ivy, she takes out I. And I thought that was so interesting and it works really well with this sort of format where the poem that she that she has chosen out of this poem is in black and everything else is faded out. Mm -hmm. And I found that it worked really well and very impressive in the way that she did it. Cause how, how would you pick out, may I be among you from that line at the very end, may these few ivy leaves be among your laurels. I just loved that she did that, not only with this one, but with the other um, erasure poems that she had. But then to the, the meat of the poem, I love the phrase, I am spellbound in the field. That immediately caught my gaze um, and caught my attention, spellbound at the mouth of the river. I just feel like this poem is so visual and so, maybe it's because I love the word spellbound, I don't know. And it's, it's emotion, again, it's the feelings that it evokes and I don't necessarily know how to go about explaining that. Let's not even attempt. I mean, that's the reason the poem exists because it is, I mean, the true poetry can't be paraphrased. 
if it could be paraphrased, we wouldn't need the poem. You know what I mean? Well, poem, yeah. And I keep, I keep going back and just like rereading the poem. It's like, well, this is, I don't know how, how else to explain it besides just rereading what I just read. <laughs> precisely. That's why the best answer to the question, what does this poem mean? is to just reread the poem. You would never ask, what does a Beethoven sonata mean? Well, here, let, you know, let's listen to it. And you feel what's happening to you? That's what it means. That's what it means. It's so, I love what you what, that you say, Sarah, that it is exceptionally hard to do this. That's an important thing to emphasize. I, I could imagine that some people looking at this might think it's easy. And if they attempt it, they might be too casual in their attempt. But um, think of the millions of permutations that are open to you. You could you could go down an endless endless rabbit hole with various combinations, trying this and trying that and trying that again. I one of the things I thought was interesting that she picked classical poems to do this yeah. with, where it's just harkening back to this kind of like ancient history or ancient examples of poems. And I find it incredible that she was able to take these poems and she uses their words but the tone of her poem is completely different. The topic is completely different. The mood is completely different. And yet it framed within our past, within, within heritage. It's framed within like this kind of tradition that's already there. And so I think that even that in and of itself adds to what the poem is. Like she didn't just write this poem by itself. She wrote it and kept everything that was around it, around it. Like the poem needs the rest of it mm. as well. I, okay, I want to highlight something you just said and then ask a question based on something you just said. The highlighting bit is, I think this works best. This form, I think it's you know called erasure poetry. You're right, Sarah. It's not really done that often. I've seen it from time to time. And you can all attempt it if you'd like, but you should beware. First of all, for several reasons we've already outlined. Also, because of something Jenea just said, it's not enough to just, oh, I'll just take any old text and pull out any old poem from it. I think... To really pull this off and make it look justifiable or purposeful, you have to be changing the source text somehow. There has to be some kind of interesting or dynamic tension between the source text and the new text. The new text has to be its own poem, different in tone and maybe intention and in style and in mood from the original text. You, you, T.S. Eliot says, great poets imitate, no, he says, good poets imitate, great poets steal. Or, and then he says something like, or at least transform what they make into something new, you know? So you have to transform what you make into something that didn't exist before. And I could imagine that it would be all too easy to try this erasure mode and not really have made anything new in the world because you're just kind of, I don't know, making a pale shadow of the original, you know? So you have to get enough distance from the original to make it your own poem, but yet you have to make your, your new poem somehow speak against or to the original poem, the kind of themes of the original poem? Very difficult. The question that I want to ask that uh, Jenea has inspired is, um, what do you think this book can teach us about how we as poets in the 21st century, <clears throat> she's- She's coming to visit BYU this semester. So I'm, and I'm that. gonna be, yeah, that's right, broadcasting her uh, reading from the rooftop so that you all go and attend it. But um, she's a young poet, you know? And yet she is clearly, highly interested in these classical antique texts. For her, they are not dead. What does this book, book teach us about how we as 21st century poets can or should relate to poetry of long, long ago? What would you say? I think kind of the thing that we read, right, the PDF um, essay that we read right at the beginning of class, where it talks about how great poems should always be studied. And I think that great poems were great poems because what made them great is universal and it stays and it sticks around. And right. so if you find no value or worth in ancient great poems, you're probably going to miss something that could make your poetry great. Like it's not like they had everything perfect, but they had something that made their poems great and you should be able to read those and appreciate that and incorporate that if you want to write great poetry as well. Love that. Yeah. Sarah, what would you add? Janae said it honestly perfectly. I think there's a lot of great things to be found in old poetry. I think sometimes it's hard for us to understand it because it's not modern and modern speech and having a familiarity with those kinds of characters that are often referenced within old poetry. But I feel like there's there's a lot to be to be gained from studying it and using it and almost modernizing it because this 
the way that she did this poem it was very much taking something and making it new. It had a very different, has very different language, even though she's using the same language, but mm-hmm. she's using it in a way that makes it new. So I, 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 I agree. Yeah. I think that what this book teaches me is that yeah, exactly what you two have just said. Timeless texts of the past are exactly that, timeless. They haven't aged. They don't age. Or I should say, I mean, maybe they might age on the edges or the margins, or they might super. I mean, who is this Alphysebus, you know? I don't know. Do we care? Maybe not. But don't let that bother you, this book teaches me. This book teaches me to not let that bother me. Just keep reading. We might not know who that's alluding to, but this poem is about how humans interact with nature. It's about how nature is beautiful and mysterious and dark and deadly and life-giving and life-taking, you know? So imagine reading the texts of the past as if they are current and as if they, as if you can inhabit them, walk around in them, roll your sleeves up and dip your arm into them and mess them around, you know? If we all did that more, we would very quickly become much better poets. I want to ask about the forms of these poems. If you read this book, you see Walman Home writing long lines and short lines, writing sometimes in which each line is separated by white space and sometimes not. Yeah, sometimes the lines are like two words or one word. Sometimes they go all the way to the other side of the page. Obviously, there is the erasure poem modes. Sometimes I think some of these poems are prose poems. Why, as a poet, would you be interested in so many shapes? How might a different shape affect our experience of a poem? I have a thought, and this goes back to when I mentioned that there are very there are many different kinds of way to express grief. And I feel like in taking on all these different kinds of forms of writing poetry, some, yeah, like you mentioned a bunch of them. One of them, I need to find it, um, but it's called Gravity Well 63. Cause this is, I think is the one with the shortest lines. Excellent. But it literally is gravity. All of the words are falling. To me, it made sense that they're all, it's all one to three words per line, and you're just being pulled down the poem. Mm-hmm. It just attests to the to the overall feeling of of grief and just melancholy throughout the entire book. I feel like it adds to that to the differentiation in poems. I love that comment. You went to a great poem to exemplify this. I don't think poems do this every single time, but very, very often great poems make sure that there is a symbiotic relationship between the form and the content. The form is somehow embodying the content or mirroring the content or, I mean, often they can kind of contrast in a way and create a wonderful friction. But in this poem, we see the experience of gravity is evoked in, as you just said, Sarah, the ways in which our eyes literally fall down the page faster than in most of the other poems. Mid-June is a whole line, line break. Mid-nowhere, line break. The sun, mid-hyphenated word, line break, somersault, right? So some, mid-somersault, I don't know, is somersault half of a word? There's a line that is half of a word, maybe. Depends on how what you count as a word. Let's talk about these short lines specifically. What are some risks in writing? And again, this question was kind of unprompted. 30 right answers, maybe. What should we be aware as poets if we attempt a poem with similarly short lines? What could go wrong? Or what do we have to make extra sure of if we do this? I, I did a couple of things that came to mind. Like there could be a risk of it sounding very choppy, having mm. such short lines. And then I would also say, I feel like in poetry, and maybe this is an incorrect assumption to have, but you don't really want things that don't need to be there. Poetry is a much shorter form of writing and you shouldn't have things that don't earn their place. And so you have really short lines. There's a risk of maybe having a line that's like of the, or something like that. And it's like, what was the point of having that line? Like every line has to be so intentional. In fact, it might be a good, I don't want to say revision tactic, but it might be one way to help reveal to us all of the dross or dead weight that could be clogging a poem of ours. If I'm working on a draft, I might be inclined to say, what, what would happen if I put this into lines of two words each? And I would suddenly notice, oh my gosh, look at all these words that aren't doing anything. And then I could get rid of them. And then maybe I could, maybe I, it would stay in these narrow little lines, or maybe I could then go and rearrange it and find its final form. But I think you're absolutely right. It, 
it could be a helpful way to kind of burn the dross out of a poem. Midsummer salt is one of those examples that it it isn't choppy because it's leading into the next line. Mm. Um, so there's midsummer salt, there's corn stalks, a couple lines farther down from that. Yeah. Um, and so some of these words are leading into the next, but then there's one of the lines that I just looked down and, and saw is like a field of it. Mm. That is one line. However, it, it becomes a lot more interesting when you read right before it is a lungful of it weighs line break like water and then line break a field of it mm. bends corn stalks then wraps around and it it's just the interest the surprise um and the the word breaks and line breaks really help it to just keep flowing you just keep falling down each line you you are looking forward to what's coming next at a kind of two word unit you know what i mean so it keeps you propelled to the poem um i i just i was looking at a couple other poems and i think that maybe just some other things that she employs um I think the one that I was looking at was Heliosphere, which is on page 52. Yeah. Where she has different spacing for some of her lines. Like the first line of some stanzas is indented severely. And she kind of does like different indentations in several different poems. But um, whenever I read a poem that has funny indentation, I always like, so I'll read the whole poem and then I'll read the lines that are indented as if they were their own poem. Mm. And sometimes it doesn't work. But I found like with some of hers, it kind of did like with Heliosphere. If you just read the very indented lines, then it reads for we were lost, cast, then adrift, aloft, please. Yeah, so I, like, I appreciated like kind of finding that in some of her poem structures. But as you say, not every single time this happens is that the intent. So right. what other reasons could a poet have? Because I think we, what we always must be striving for when we compose poetry is that we're making deliberate choices. Deliberate doesn't mean fully rational or articulatable. They can be kind of intuitive choices. And, you know, most likely many of these choices are kind of intuitive. So I'm not going to ask us to read the mind of the poet, but I think they do help create some kind of mood or experience or, you know, that that McLeish quote that I think was on one of the first slides of the semester, right? A poem should be, not mean. They help create they are an integral part of the experience of this poem. So could could we spend 60 seconds adding to this list of why we might fiddle with white space? Because I don't want us to just fiddle with white space because we think it's the cool thing that we get to do because we're poets and we get to defy the rules, right? I think we should have sl slightly better reasons than that. And like I said, I, I, I ramble a lot. and I know I've asked you a question and I'm not shutting up to let you answer it. But like I say might not be fully articulatable. It might be kind of intuitive, but let's try to do our best. Why might we fiddle with white space? First of all, I really appreciate you bringing that up, Janae, because I hadn't ever seen that like, and, and read a poem in that way with the really indented lines. But something that I noticed about how the lines are indented is that they seem to line up, like the beginning of the really indented line lines up right where the other, the previous line ended. So it's almost as if it could fit, it could shift up and be part of that other line, but there's a reason that it's not. Like what you were saying, whether it's to create um, an emphasis on those phrases to put them together mm -hmm. in a different way, or just to create a break in space. So it's a break in time or a break in the storytelling because... Is, is fallow an example of what you mean? We kind of looked at the very beginning. So this is page 29. Yeah, very similar to that. I'll try and find the, the one I was thinking of, but that's what I mean is that the the indentations are lining up with the other lines. I like what you say, Sarah. It could, poems are music. Poems are weird. Poems are both music. They're kind of painting. They're kind of neither and both. So it could be a musical effect that's being achieved here, a kind of rest, like in a musical measure, you know, a measure of music, a kind of rest or a kind of pause. So it could be for totally musical purposes that this is done. It could be for visual purposes. I want to create a more diffused, less dense linguistic artifact. So I'm going to inject more oxygen into the room. It could just simply be for that reason. Yeah. I'd also like to mention the O's because after the second or third O, I realize that they're dissolving. They're dissolving. Yeah. What do you want to say about that? I have no idea. Just the fact that it was very interesting. <laughs> well, and I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, we maybe didn't talk. We only have an hour. I mean, we have a second hour because we'll be meeting as a class to talk about this book. And I'll try to make sure that there we talk more about maybe the content of this book or its kind of arc as a collection. But it certainly must relate to what Jenea says about the speaker kind of dissolving or melting into this landscape. And the erasure poems as a form are an example of this. It's a book which thematically is obsessed with dissolution or disappearing. And that's being enacted kind of every chance she gets to enact that. And in every way she can, she is. You know, I think that's really interesting. I think the only last thing that I've been thinking about her poetry is that her choice of point of view was mm. um, like very distinct where she sometimes for the most part it sort of follows through the book but that like not entirely consistently but she had poems where she used I and then there were poems where she used you and then there were poems where she used we and um, I thought it was very interesting like the different effects of the poems when she used a different pronoun well can we talk about this yeah we have two minutes we can talk about it um this is an open-ended question no correct answer what changes based on the pronouns or another question is, maybe this is a better question. Who is the speaker of these poems? <laughs> maybe that's a worse question. What do you guys think? Um, I, answering more of the first question, kind of what changes as it goes through, is that like, I kind of felt like hope when she started using we in her poems. Like, even though they were still sad, like, I don't know that those poems were necessarily more positive, but yet it felt like, okay, like I'm... I'm no longer alone. Like as I was reading these poems, like, okay, now I'm thinking of somebody else that's with me and going through all of these things. She does what Zimborska does and what we'll see great poets doing time and time again. Great poets speak for humanity. You know, we are not alone. We're sharing a common experience. I definitely agree with Jenea. I am surprised I didn't notice as much, honestly, the difference between like the switching between I and we and you, but the we definitely brings in that that universal, but I think that the you and the I do as well, where it becomes very, very personal to, yes, this is me in this poem. We talked about this uh, a little bit last class. This is a paradox where the more particular you get, the more universal you can become. That's not antithetical to the goal of universality, using the personal pronoun I. You know, Let me just end with some of my favorite lines in the book. This is page 53, Termination Shock. Somewhere behind us is something like a sun. I hear the whole species being evoked in that line. We have stopped riding our fevers and they have stopped running, have broken through some tall fence and are grazing on the other side. We are sweating, still expecting the sun to appear and burn our faces with its face as if anything could ever love us that bluntly again. But we can't stop reaching. You, and they think, oh, okay, this is two people. This isn't a species looking at themselves in the context of the cosmos. Oh, there's a you and I. You dig a deep ditch and we lie in it to see all the angles of the sky. I chop down an entire hill. But even though the poem has shifted to I and you, it's a much more intimate scene. I still think I have been primed to see this you and I as representative humans. I can stand there and be that and do those things. I mean, for many reasons, maybe one of which is because she's already primed us with this we. Um, okay, well, I won't keep you a minute longer. Thank you both so much for a great chat. Thank you so That's much. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Now it's time for the writing prompt. As you saw in that chat and while reading this book, I think Walmanholm has more or less perfected the genre of the erasure poem. We discussed at length in that chat why Walmanholm succeeds at this mode. And the writing prompt is simply to follow in her footsteps, pick an ancient text, and try to perform a similar erasure. Remember what T.S. Eliot says, good poets imitate, great poets steal. And then he goes on to say that they make something new out of what they steal. So it's your job to make a totally new and different poem make sure that this exercise in erasure produces something that was not noticeable or present in the source text. That, however, is not enough, I think, to really pull this off successfully. That new poem that you make out of the old one, ideally, makes us re-see the old one in a new light, brings out certain aspects of it that weren't readily available before. This is difficult. This might be more difficult than just writing a new poem of your own. 
It takes a lot of guts and courage and daring to invite comparison with the great poets of the past. So take your time. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to go through a lot of trial and error here, both in the choice of your source text and the millions of combinations of words that you could bring out or suppress. Maybe the most important piece of advice that I would have for this is just to have fun. Be open to experiment, be open to surprise, and just see what happens. Since Walman Holmes' book builds on a long and rich tradition of pastoral poetry, I would like to make the poem of the day one of my favorite pastoral poems. It is by Christopher Marlowe, and it is called The Passionate Shepherd to His Love. Come live with me, and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove that valleys, groves, hills, and fields, woods, or steepy mountain yields. And we will sit upon the rocks, seeing the shepherds feed their flocks, by shallow rivers to whose falls melodious birds sing madrigals. And I will make thee beds of roses, and a thousand fragrant posies, a cap of flowers, and a kirtle embroidered all with leaves of myrtle, a gown made of the finest wool, which from our pretty lambs we pull, fair-lined slippers for the cold, with buckles of the purest gold, a belt of straw and ivy buds, with coral clasps and amber studs, and if these pleasures may thee move, come live with me, and be my love. The shepherds' swains shall dance and sing for thy delight each May morning. If these delights thy mind may move, then live with me, and be my love. That's it for now. The next recording will be between me and a couple of you about Geography 3 by Elizabeth Bishop. So keep your eyes peeled for that. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, keep experimenting, keep enjoying the readings, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. <laughs>